uh, literally 100,000 people in severe distress. I'd never seen uh, bodies lying, dead bodies lying uh, down the tracks through the, uh, the bush in the way that I did. And um, it was um, both haunting, it was um, a very extreme experience, and it was definitely, for me, a Damascene conversion. Welcome to the World Extreme Medicine Podcast, Combat Civilian, in conversation with Dr. Gilbert Greenall on humanitarian disaster response. I am your host, Bhavandeep Singh, and today I am honored and delighted to have with us Dr. the Honorable Gilbert Greenall, CBE, who has a career that spans over 40 years in the management of humanitarian emergencies and post-conflict recovery. After leaving the British Army in 1976 and studying business management at the INSEAD Business School France, Gilbert went on to train as a doctor. He is also a fully qualified pilot, and his work has taken him, among others, to Sierra Leone, East Timor, Kosovo, Uganda, China, and Afghanistan. Gilbert has been a member of the United Nations Disaster Assessment and Coordination Team since 97, and his memoir, Combat Civilian, documents his long and exciting career from the jungles of Cambodia rescuing refugees in the final days of the Khmer Rouge in 1979 to the chaos of Baghdad in 2016. So Gilbert, welcome to the podcast. It's a pleasure having you. Uh, well, Pavel, it's very nice to, 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 um, to join you. And I hope that um, it'll be interesting to your listeners who um, want a career in humanitarianism, uh, a world that's changed hugely over the last um, 40 years since I started in 1979. Um, very uh, much more complicated world and very much larger numbers of beneficiaries that we have to deal with in today's, uh, today's crises. Thank you, Gilbert. And yes, the um, listenership of World Extreme Medicine and the individuals involved have a wide range of interests from medic medicine to, to military personnel. Um, and humanitarian work is something that many of our members hold close to their hearts and would like to get involved in. Um, your book is very aptly and very interestingly named. Could you describe what it means to be a combat civilian? Well, it's a, a, a truthful description, but uh, more, uh, too, rather more sensational than I really wanted it uh, to be. Uh, the name comes because when I was working at the Ministry of Defence years ago, I was standing with uh, um, General Richards, who was then the Chief of Defence Staff, and he introduced me to some of his uh, staff officers. He said, here is Gilbert Greenall, he's our combat civilian. And um, it really was a reference, it's a play on words, of course, but combat soldier, combat civilian, but it was a reference to non-combatants who work in conflict zones, um, and something that's actually these days very difficult to do because um, the duties of care, uh, insurance issues, um, large organisations and charities are very cautious about uh, allowing people to roam around in conflict uh, zones quite uh, correctly. But it is important. Non-combatants are required to do whatever they, they've gone there to do. And um, therefore, it's a rather truthful 
um, uh, description of uh, the work of the certainly of the book and the work that I've been doing. Now, your first experience of humanitarian work occurred in Cambodia, where you write, you realized that that was the way forward for you. Um, why was that? Well, I'd um, been at um, business school and I was always, I'd left the, the British Army uh, as a 22-year-old. I went straight from school and then I went on to, um, I did some work experience in the uh, of the in the wine trade and bring distilling, and I was meant to go to business school and then go back to my family company. Um, but my father thought that business schools were dreadful places where I'd fill my head with um, with silly ideas, and he said, "You can go and try them out elsewhere, but you're not bringing them back to uh, back back home." So when I finished at business school, um, I didn't have a job to go back to. Um, I'd become quite interested um, in all sorts of other fringe subjects at business school, um, raw material um, policies in for countries, um, power, energy, and uh, development. And there was a guy from the OECD who was teaching about appropriate technology in those days. Um, it was very exciting. And I went out to Thailand uh, to look at a project run by an um, alumnus of INSEAD. Um, and he said to me something that's remained with me all my life. He he said, unless these projects have um, a real economic driver behind them, business driver behind them, they just won't work. And um, it's been something that's been proved true again and again. And while I was in Thailand, um, I was at the bar in the Oriental Hotel um, in Bangkok and met up with a Swiss doctor. And he said, you know, tomorrow I'm going down to the... Um, Cambodian border, there's some very bad things happening down there. Um, the world hasn't yet got the wind of this, but the Vietnamese army have been advancing up to Cambodia to push out uh, Pol Pot's uh, army, and all the civilians are coming out on the, civilian side, on the border with Thailand. And I went down with him, and uh, it was very much a Damascene conversion. I'd never seen hundreds, uh, literally 100,000 people in severe distress. I'd never seen uh, bodies lying, dead bodies lying uh, down the tracks through the uh, the bush in the way that I did. And um, it was um, both haunting, it was um, a very extreme experience, and it was definitely, for me, a Damascene conversion. And I came back um, from uh, that experience determined to have a career um, in in um, humanitarianism, which, by the way, was a very unfashionable thing uh, to do back in 1979, and a very unusual thing uh, to do. Can I ask why that was? What was the general one, um, feeling? Um, I think uh, there wasn't the coverage of the world was mm. with the Cold War. The world was more stable in some ways, because it was split into zones of influence. Um, and also, without the internet, uh, without the iPhone, um, a lot of conflicts going on around the world just were unknown to people. I mean, compared to today, the amount of violence in the world was much greater, but um, people didn't know anything about it. And it was certainly a very fringe fringe activity. That The NGOs were tiny. The whole world, humanitarian world was a very, very small one indeed. 
Mm -hmm. Your decision to go to Iran in 1991, but that was made after a deal organized by the old Etonian um, Medical Society. So, was that? Could you tell us about that a bit more? I came back um, from Cambodia, which was actually a very short experience of several months. Um, and I came back and I got a job um, with Oxfam to go to as field director to, to Uganda. Um, that was a, a very simple famine relief program up in the northwest. Um, there was a lot of talk about desert, desert, uh, the sort of increasing Sahel problems of, of increasing uh, dry areas and desert. Uh, it was nothing to do with that. It was to do with conflict in Uganda between basically the north and the south. Um, it, uh, Uganda was in a terrible mess. Um, this is after the fall of Idi Amin. Um, and there was violence, looting, and general mayhem from one end of the country to the other. And I was involved uh, as one of the field directors of the Save the Children Fund, Oxfam, um, the Irish organization concern. And we were the, the, the first of um, subcontractors to the UN. This was something that happens all the time now, where you have implementing agencies uh, to the United Nations, which are mainly the, the, the big charities. But it was quite novel in those days. And we were therefore given the job of um, actually delivering food uh, to a relatively small group of people. It was about 100,000, which in today's terms is nothing. Um, and I'd come back from this um, thinking that, yes, that's an interesting thing to do, um, but it's not a, a career. You, you know, I need to, to earn a living. So mm -hmm. I came back and, and got a place in medical school in Bristol and spent the next seven mm -hmm. years at medical school. And it was only when I'd finished my house jobs and I was waiting to do my first SHO job as, um, uh, in A&E in Cheltenham that um, the first Gulf War came along. Well, I was a reservist and all reservists who were also doctors were called up in the first Gulf War. There was a thought that there would be going to be very large casualties um, and um, I was destined to get end up on a, on a hospital ship down in the Gulf and I went to this dinner and... Um, the um, uh, there was a consultant from um, um, uh, um, uh, for pediatric consultant who said you need just come back from Iran where there were loads of um, uh, Kurdish refugees who had been pouring over the border and said you know pricked all our consciences and it was a strange thing I was at the dinner at all because uh, I don't dwell on on being an old Etonian. It's not a place I go to very often. And I've been persuaded to go to this dinner. And we were all severely tested. Would we, would we go? And I said, of course. And next week, um, the Red Cross rang me and said, would I like to go as the um, uh, field director for the Red Cross to Iran? Um, that was a very brief um, moment because um, it was impossible to do anything inside Iran because the Iranians took all the humanitarian aid off the Western agencies as soon as it arrived in Iran and said, well, that's very kind of you all, but we will now deal with that. And the way that they treated or um, thought of the Kurds was way outside what we thought was uh, acceptable. And um, I realized that nothing was going to really happen. They came back. And at that moment, um, the Foreign Office um, had picked up a report that I'd written for the British Red Cross saying we need to get aid delivered inside 
uh, northern Iraq uh, as a pull factor to get um, the Kurds back into their own country. And this was just at the same time as John Major was thinking of sending um, three commando brigade into northern Iraq. And um, I ended up going with the brigade commander uh, as um, part of the foreign office effort there. And we had 100 civilians that joined three commando brigade. Um, and our job was to repatriate half a million um, Kurdish um, refugees who were over the border. These were all over the border into Turkey rather than Iran. Those ones later came back, but um, it was a half a million directly on the Turkish border that we were concerned with. And it was the most uh, extraordinary experience. Um, it uh, didn't involve much violence. I think there was only about half a dozen shots fired in anger um, at some retreating Iraqi troops. Uh, but otherwise, the mountains of Kurdistan were all empty of Saddam Hussein's troops. And we were able uh, to get people on the move. We moved 170,000 uh, refugees over a weekend. And the interesting thing is they went back into the places that they originally lived. Um, there'd been all these villages in the mountains that Saddam Hussein had uh, cleared and moved them down into the um, the Tigris and Euphrates plains into um, places where you could control them. And when they got their tents, and we gave out 50,000 tents in 10 days, I remember, uh, they went back to their original villages. And it was an extraordinarily exciting, positive uh, and lovely program to be involved with. Yeah, I remember, in again, in your book, you, you there was a line you mentioned where you said, you know, they asked you, what do you need? And you said, I need 50,000 tents. And it, it came. And that must feel good when actually what you need is is delivered, because I'm sure you've felt the opposite of that as well during your years. Well, it, it, it probably set me up to think that, uh, that I mean, I must say that Oxfam was very good in, in Uganda. They were very good to their word. They had a fantastic... Um, uh, quartermaster function in Nairobi uh, and used to supply me with stuff uh, very promptly but um, in later years you'd be quite right uh, it wasn't always so easy but it was marvellous to see the Hercules C-130s coming in um, piled high with tents uh, when you ask for tents you ask for anything um, it came so mm. it was very very exciting so Gilbert, what would you say are the fundamentals of delivering effective humanitarian aid and assistance? Well, what I'm going to say now, it sounds so obvious, but it's not how um, mainstream humanitarianism has looked at this problem. Um, if you're dealing with a, a humanitarian emergency, uh, there are four things that are, are really important. Uh, in um, what we used to call Maslow's Pyramid of Needs. Uh, the first one is water and sanitation, because without clean drinking water and sanitation, people will die very quickly. Um, the second thing is some food. The third thing is some shelter. And the fourth thing is access to, to medical provision. And each humanitarian emergency I've ever been involved with has had those ingredients in slightly different orders or in different priorities, but it's always been the same things. So it's a bit like classical architecture. It's always the same, but it's always different. And it's the proportions that, that matter. So um, that's the first point. But um, what creates a humanitarian emergency is where you have a large group of people who don't have, acce have access to those four things. So two things can happen. Either the people can move to where those things are available, 
or you have to move the things to where the people are. And therefore, freedom of movement is incredibly important. And so it's a provision of fuel. Because today, and even in those days, people had cars and they can jump in their car and go to their relatives in a different part of the country or in a different country even uh, and survive. But if they all stay in the same place and there isn't access to those things, they will surely die. And it's been that very simple concept of these four essential needs, the freedom of movement and the fuel, to allow this thing to work. And if you can, in any of the planning or the organisation that you're involved with, make sure that those things can happen. And I've put, bizarrely, um, fuel into filling stations um, in um, the Balkans, for example, to allow people to fill up their cars, because if they can't fill up their cars, they can't move. And I remember going in front of the select committee um, of uh, the public finance select committee in the, in the House of Commons, and they said, well, you, you know, you, know you, you filled up petrol stations. Um, and I said, yes, for this very reason, because it allowed people uh, to move around. And if they can move around, their lives will be saved. So it's, it's very important. Now, what has really changed is the mass urbanization of the world. Um, instead of the world being mostly rural um, with cities, it is now mostly very large urban, uh, urban uh, communities. Uh, Cairo, uh, Jakarta, these are cities of 20 million people. And when they don't have access to electricity and water, things go horribly wrong. So um, we need to think now, today, today's big change is that we're moving away from giving everybody a water container and a blanket to deal with those basic needs to actually be running power stations and, um, and um, modern water utilities to make sure that those work. Because first of all, it's, very, it's relatively simple to do. You have millions of beneficiaries and it's a hidden hand. It doesn't require large numbers of people to be running about. And nearly always the utility um, employees are around. And even if they haven't been paid or they haven't got food, you can pay them, you can get food to them and make sure that you can get spare parts to them and you can make sure that these um, these things work. A water pump can supply water to 20,000 people. Uh, the low voltage um, electricity distribution system is simple. It can Most teams can put up a pole an hour. So these are things that we have to think about today, but it still follows those basic principles, water and sanitation, food, shelter, and provision of medical services. And sometimes the medical services are infrastructure-based, getting the electricity and water to the hospital, repairing the autoclave, the x-ray machine, as well as supplying the drugs to them. So it's, it's often very simple things that you can do, which can have a very big multiplier effect. Thank you. Very comprehensive description there. Um, Gilbert, what challenges have you faced in the pursuit of providing the humanitarian assistance you describe? And what advice would you give to others um, in dealing with similar situations? The, the biggest um, problem I, I find um, is the institutionalization of approach. So you get a lot of, this is what we do, not 
let's look at the problem. Let's make an analysis. Let's be imaginative, perhaps iconoclastic, and do what is needed to be done. Perhaps it's never been done before, but it is a solution to the problem. Instead, we get, this is how we do it. And in goes this template, and it's a one-size-fits-all, and it often doesn't fit at all. So that is the sort of first first um, problem. And um, organisations, uh, for example, protection is a big issue um, today, which it didn't used to be in the same way. Because we, you know, I'd always argue that if you don't have clean water and sanitation, food, shelter, um, and some sort of medical, and medical important today because um, lots of people have first world problems where they've got diabetes and they need insulin or they've got hypertension, um, they, they've got problems that, you know, will kill them if they're not um, treated because they don't get access to drugs. But it, it's... Um, the uh, this one size fits all and saying protection yes we need to have child friendly spaces in refugee camps but if you don't actually have the refugee camp you're ahead of the game you need to wait a moment until the other thing people have had the space first and you can come along uh, and uh, and and supply your your niche product at the right moment because if something there's no water and sanitation you're not people are going to die you're not going to have any customers for what you deliver now, that's quite a controversial thing to say because people say, oh, protection is the most important thing. But it is important. But you, you've got to have a look at this Maslow's uh, pyramid of needs and, and also think um, imaginatively uh, about how you're going to approach uh, the problems that you see. And, and it may be something that's very different from what you've experienced before. Compared to is mm-hmm. conflict. I, one of the great constraints, of course, is conflict. Um, and uh, it's very, you know, one one issue I had in, in the Balkans is that we were supplying uh, humanitarian assistance during a conflict. So in medicine, um, there were great shortages um, in every possible sector of the medical, um, in the, of the medical sector. So what I did, I got boxes um, which were anaesthetics, boxes which were GP, boxes that were general surgery. And each box could be picked up by two people and put in the back of a pickup. And we distributed these boxes so that the people that were trained and did exist in the country could get hold of one of these boxes and practice medicine. And it was a lovely idea, different and it had to be carried by two people. It was no good it being needed a forklift truck to pick up um, because there might not be one to, to, to either put it onto a lorry or take it off. Um, and whether it was relatively small, it could be even taken on a mule or a donkey. It, it didn't matter. And I think it was rather a nice idea um, of how to, to see the, the situation slightly differently. How would you compare um, humanitarian work and aid as it was carried out in, say, the 70s and the 80s to today? And how have things changing during those years? Well, I've already touched on on this, and I think um, the uh, aid agencies in Uganda were about 15 different agencies. Uh, by the time we got to uh, one 
uh, I think in Albania during the Kosovo crisis, we were up to about 500 trying to operate in the country at the same time. So from a, a very small group of people, actually quite easy to coordinate, you suddenly got these enormous numbers of people. And the coordination of this has become extremely difficult. And people, after all, don't want to be coordinated very much. And you have to remember, when you hear of there must be more coordination, uh, the UN coordinator has no power to tell people what to do. So it has to be done by the use of very good diplomatic and political skills and persuading people that they might be better going to A rather than B to do X instead of Y. And that requires great skill. And when you've got 500 organisations in a country, um, that can be very, very challenging indeed. Um, and you always have a few rogue, rogue organisations um, that get up to doing something, which is either putting other people's lives at risk or um, causing absolute havoc somewhere. And um, as we know, when I've been a UN coordinator, trying to get people onto the naughty step and saying, come on, you've got to sharpen up because if you go on like this, we're going to get the government here to, 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 to tell you to leave the country because it's not possible. But I mean, that's happened only in my career in a very, very few number of cases. But um, it is difficult um, because these organisations have very different philosophies and different reasons for having been set up in the first place and sometimes can be very much at conflict with each other. But it's nice to say, I'd say in, in retrospect, over the course of 40 years, uh, mainly people are putting on the oar together rather than um, than being disruptive, but it does happen. Um, and I think that back to your the, the question of scale, uh, it's gone from rural to urban, and you know we are dealing with very large numbers of people. I think that the um, earthquake recently in Turkey, although I didn't go myself, um, you know the 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 importance of getting utilities back, water and, and electricity, was you know paramount because you can reach so many people, and you you can start what what is referred to as normal market mechanisms. Once the electricity is back, the fuel stations can pump out fuel, vehicles can move about, um, hospitals can function, uh, businesses can function, and um, the thing is self-generating. So it's it's an incredibly important uh, important idea. And, and I'm looking at this issue, um, I believe the International Committee of the Red Cross have now picked up on on um, water and electricity as a as a major thing to look at and are already uh, doing some rather wonderful things in this field. Thank you, Gilbert. You've given us a very in-depth um, description of you know, the, the, the basic fundamentals of humanitarian aid. And, you know, hopefully I, I really believe our listeners will really find that very useful. Um, and also to see how things have changed, the challenges people face on the ground. But I want to now move on to, I guess, more of the emotional aspect of this type of work. Um, throughout your years, you would have seen and witnessed quite distressing and terrible events. How have you remained focused um, despite these things going on around you? Well, I think... Um, I, I'm going to answer. So there's one issue which I, I know that you were interested in, and I'm going to bring up first, which is uh, Antoine de Saint-Exupéry said 
Um, it's not the things that matter, it's your attitude towards them. Now, it may be a rather bizarre quote that comes at the beginning of my book, but I think it's quite important because um, these things are not deterministic. That is, if you have this experience, you will have PTSD or whatever. That it doesn't doesn't follow as, as those um, um, medical practitioners listening will, will know. And there's a huge variance in people's um, robustness um, uh, in the face of really unpleasant things. Um, years ago, I was on a course with um, at the UN and a guy who was a doctor at uh, the International Committee of the Red Cross um, was speaking to us and he said that in England, um, this is 30 years ago, um, we were rather more protected than most countries um, from PTSD. And I said, well, why is that? And he said, because of your sense of humour. Now, countries changed a lot in 30 years and I think that uh, this may lo no longer be the case. But our sense of humour and black humour has been a great outlet. Um, if you ask people who work in A&E departments, it used to be the absolute staple of people dealing with very unpleasant uh, experiences. Um, and it's that attitude all the way through um, that if you allow yourself um, uh, to become a victim of this, you will suffer uh, for sure. I mean, occasionally um, there have been very nasty things that have happened um, and that don't need to be dwelled on, dwelt on. But I think it's um, it's that 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 starting point of attitude to things that that and a robust and, and and embracing a robustness of spirit, which I feel is very important. And I think if you, you you're not the right sort of person, then perhaps you should steer away. It's like you know these things are self-selecting, um, and probably the accident emergency department is is one of them too. Um, and if it's not your bag, then um, you know it's 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 probably not an advisable one to to embrace. But I think the other thing is concentrating on the job in hand. If you've got a very big and difficult job to do, break it down into small parts. And this is the the um, you know how do you remain focused? You you break down a very intangible and difficult task into bits that are doable, and give all your energy into each part of the problem and making sure that it's done and therefore the next one's done and the next one and then hey presto the whole thing begins to come together so a bit of attitude and a bit of pragmatic ma pragmatic management um, is the answer probably to your question not easily because we live in a world today where sentiment emotion is allowed to rule uh, supreme when i was a child i was born in 1954 um, there was definitely a hierarchy where your brain was in charge of your and your emotions came second and your physical makeup came third. Now, these are rather old fashioned ideas, but there always was you're in charge and get a grip was the, um, the sort of expression my mother would have used. And it's not something that you hear very often today. And in fact, people say, oh, yeah, that's not a that is an absolute heresy. But um, it's certainly... If you allow yourself to wallow in these things, you will end up in the ditch. Thank you. Yeah, um, really good words. Um, and unfortunately, yes, the f things seem to change somewhat nowadays where um, we tend to, where it's a lot easier um, to fall into that trap of becoming a victim, I'd say. Um, 
you've touched upon it, but for the our younger listeners or our less experienced listeners, such as myself, uh, how can we prepare and learn to apply that strategy in our day-to-day lives? So before we even go out to the disaster zone, there are steps we can take, um, like you mentioned about breaking down big problems. So I guess we can take problems we face at home, work, family, etc., and breaking them down and using that as a mental training perhaps to build up that resilience i think that's that that's true because um when we get overwhelmed by problems it's because we can't see um, a way through the whole problem and therefore by breaking them down into bits that you can deal with um, you have a sense of progress a sense of fulfillment and you have to remember that all humanitarian assistance is Oxfam used to have a, 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 an expression of each drop of rain makes up the ocean. And um, some very simple things can be very valuable. Um, it was the, the story of the, um, the child throwing starfish into the sea after a, a very high tide. And someone saying, well, look, the whole beach is littered with these things. Um, you, you're not making much of a difference. And uh, as a child throws one of them into the sea, well, it makes a difference for that one. And I think it's a rather nice analogy because um, you can do, if one person's life is improved, that's enough. And to think you can save the world, um, no. I mean, most humanitarian programs sort of end largely in failure because you can only grip a tiny proportion of the problem. And by the time you've been and gone in the few months that you're going to work on it, um, the impact of that event is going to be a, a lifetime for a lifetime on the, the population of that country or some of those individuals that lose their limbs or their sight or whatever or very very badly um uh, uh, injured and so we can only do a small small amount and therefore not to feel mm. that you're going to complete something um i'll give you an example um always i feel that the job is half finished when i come home but i hold this principle that a drop of is what makes up the ocean and the one program that seemed almost perfect which was the Karamoja famine relief program that I took part in 1980-81 that was intellectually very sound it had an emergency program of one year followed by a development program to follow it to deal with the causes of famine and it all looked so elegant but within um, two years it is as if the, the sands had rolled over the entire programme and it hadn't made any difference whatsoever, apart from us all being patting ourselves on the back and thinking we'd done a, hmm. an incredible job. But a friend of mine who stayed on said, you've no idea, it made no difference at all. Now, um, of course, it made a difference to those that had been saved. But in terms of dealing with the much larger problem uh, um, in that part of the country, um, it was going to be generational before things um, changed and I think we can if we go with expectations that we're going to change the world radically we're probably not going to be we're not going to but I think that doesn't stop us because we should do something for all those individuals that come across we come across we can do something for and we're going to make a big, very big difference to them thank you um on that note Gilbert um, I'm hoping this conversation um, will be spurring on some of our listeners to get involved in humanitarian work. And I'm sure many would have come to this conversation because they are interested in humanitarian work. What advice would you give to the 
the budding young humanitarians of today eager to go out into the world and make a difference and just get started? Well, when I looked at your question, um, I just wrote down in pencil beside it, just go. <laughs> it sounds rather sort of biblical. We've got lots of reasons why we wouldn't. You know, we've, you know, we've just got our first job in medicine or we've just got our mortgage or we've just had the birth of our first child or we, you know, all these things crowd around and, um, and tell you that, you know, your you know, common sense might say actually it's not quite the right moment and it's not very well paid and there are all sorts of these things but I think it's much easier today in terms of there are proper jobs that are properly you know given sensible salaries and it is possible to go through the the charity sector or through um, the uh, Foreign and Commonwealth and Development Office to jobs. Um, and it, it, it is easier today than it, than it was. Um, I think there's nothing like experience and there's nothing like being known to people in the sector. So even if it's on a gap year, when you've got the opportunity to do it and there's not too many pressures, then you gain some experience and you get some contacts and you probably will be in a good place to get a job at either the the EU. The, the UN is very hard, especially for, for British passport holders, because surprisingly, we've had held all the high positions at the UN on the humanitarian side over the years and were hugely overrepresented at the UN, which sounds odd, but we are. Um, but we have some of the biggest charities in the world. The EU has plenty of people um, that they employ to go out on, on programmes. Um, I think it's just a choice of, 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 um, of looking at that. But there's nothing to stop people going out to a country which is well known for having a, a, a protracted uh, long-term crisis and meeting people on the ground. But you need to be very courageous to do that, there's no doubt. And two people who came up to work with me in Uganda they were backpackers from Australia. They had nothing but a couple of T-shirts, a couple of shorts and a pair of flip-flops and no return ticket. And I admired them hugely for their courage because you do need courage to, to be able to not, not care about what's going to happen next and just be so uh, existential in your, your outlook to be able to do that. But it is a hard, a hard thing. And um, I think in medicine, um, if you've got done paediatrics, um, there's probably an opportunity to go on short-term assignments. And now the UN are, st are standardising the medical teams. So there used to be a rather dangerous time when you could turn up with a stethoscope and say, well, you know, I'm a doctor and I'm my GMC number, but that no longer cuts uh, the mustard. You need to be properly registered. And uh, once you are, you can then join uh, proper affiliated um, medical teams uh, because you could see that the dangers of people turning up um, all sorts of imposters and bad people turned up as uh, pretending to be doctors and, and, and there were awful things uh, that happened and, and standards of practice and all sorts so um, it is much better so in terms of that WHO have made a huge uh, advance sort of probably uh, it happened about five years ago, five, six years ago, probably longer now, but into standardising uh, medical teams and 
Um, MSF, Medicines Sans Frontières, are very strong yeah. on the medical teams, especially their surgical teams, and have done really quite wonderful things. So I think in the medical sector, it's much easier, but it's really um, field surgery or field um, paediatrics. It's the two, two areas where things are most sought after. And I may be out of date because you know, I've not been doing that many missions because um, with my age, I'm getting a bit, um, bit old now. No, thank you. That that's excellent advice. Okay, um, I think um, just just finally, want you to get your thoughts on the fact you know you've seen so much in life from pain and suffering to the the triumph of the human spirit amidst evil. Um, what final piece of advice could you impart to our listeners? Well, uh, what is, I think, the most important thing is that however dark, however, how, however terrible the things that you meet, the good side that you will see outshines the bad by a very, very large margin, uh, so hugely to make it always rewarding work to do. Um, I think of all the truly exceptional people that I've met um, in the last 40 years, um, I, you don't meet them every day, but you meet people of such astonishingly good people whose hearts are um, so firmly in the interests of other people that I think it makes it um, the, the, one of the most rewarding things that you could ever, ever wish to do. And rare, because we live in a terribly, um, it's all the world about me in Western Europe. Um, and um, th that has really... Um, the idea of, of putting other people's interests before your own is such a, an old-fashioned idea these days. And to meet some of these very good people who um, are talented, gifted, um, and are working because they think it's important rather than for the, re the remuneration they get, um, and to live very uncomfortable lives. I mean, I, in my uh, um, a presentation on my book, I said, you know, it's a marvel um, every morning for me uh, to, uh, to 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 run the taps and fast, firstly find that water comes out of it, second that it's hot, and um, not <laughs> sleep uh, on a concrete floor with a bed. And uh, I've spent a very good part of my life with no water coming out of the tap and sleeping on a concrete floor. And um, I always think that's perhaps now one of the things that sort of discourages me because as I'm nearly 70, sleeping on a concrete floor really is quite a, an aggravating uh, factor. But, uh, it still is something to, to not get too bothered about. No, wonderful. Yes. Um, just, I, yeah, I can relate to what you said earlier about you can go across to these missions and you find people from completely different walks of life completely different background to yourself but you see that people share that desire to do good for their fellow man and that can give you gives you hope in humanity and it, it's it's worth all the hardship because you're then united in a common cause um indeed indeed yeah, I thank you, Gilbert, for giving us such a rich conversation, um, full of wisdom and inspiration for our listeners. Um, I'm really hoping this will give people the final kick if they've been needing a kick to get out of that door. 
um, and go on their own adventure and go out on their own mission and to start helping people. Um, your book, Combat Civilian, could you just let us know, um, the listeners, where they can um, obtain it from? Um, yes. Um, I think that we've, uh, the original run of paperbacks, which were for sale at um, Amazon, have run out. I've just had it reprinted. It is available. It will be available on Amazon again in a moment. We haven't quite uh, organized that. So at the moment, it's available through um if you google um my name and combat civilian it should come to bombsboro estate which is my website and um when you do that um you can buy them online uh, from bombsboro estate perfect okay that, yeah that's that's wonderful that's great um that brings our conversation to a close um you can also email us for any further information if you wish to um, get in touch with Gilbert or find out any more information about his work or his book. Um, and just a final reminder, the World Extreme Medicine Conference will be coming back this November in Edinburgh, um, where pretty much the entire World Extreme Medicine community gathers and shares inspiration, stories, and friendship and fellowship. Um, so I thank you all for your time. Gilbert, once again, thank you so much for giving us um, this time out of your busy schedule. It's been incredibly useful, incredibly inspiring, and it's filled me with hope, and I hope it's filled our listeners with hope as well. Thank you. Well, thank you. Thank you all for listening. Bye. Thanks for listening to the episode. Please feel free to rate, review, and subscribe on whichever platform you're listening to. Please also head over to the World Extreme Medicine website where you can find more engaging content on extreme medicine webinars and indeed the collection of courses from our global network, including humanitarian, disaster relief, expedition, space, military, tactical, and performance medicine. Thanks again.